0: Good afternoon. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I want to thank you for joining us uh, here in Washington, D.C., and online uh, for this very important discussion about health care. In most health care debates, well, a lot of them can be reduced to, um, to well, to shouting some version of the following uh, – uh, to two sides sh- shouting some version of the following at each other. Uh, the US healthcare sector is good and Canada's is bad, or Great Britain's healthcare sector is good and uh, American healthcare is bad. And on both the left and right, people come up with data to support these propositions. You'll hear on the left people uh, looking at uh, life expectancy data in the, in, in the U.S. and comparing that to other countries and finding that the United States performs rather poorly compared to other advanced nations. Uh, the same is true of, life, of uh, infant mortality data. The U.S. does not perform uh, as well as, as we would expect. And, in fact, uh, uh, rather poorly considering the amount that we spend on uh, health care in the United States and ha- how that's about double the average for other advanced nations. On the left, uh, or I'm sorry, on the right, you'll hear a defense of uh, the United States healthcare care sector and attacks on other uh, nations' uh, health outcomes, such as this one, which was, uh, which was posted uh, last night on the blog of Commentary magazine uh, by uh, a gentleman named Noah Pollack, who, who said that Americans do better when diagnosed with cancer than their European counterparts do. And he cited uh, a... Lancet Oncology uh, article on cancer survival rates, um, or I've actually, no, I'm sorry, this is, this is an article by another scholar named David Gratzer at the Manhattan Institute that, uh, that cited that Lancet Oncology article. Uh, Gretzer writes that for 16 different types of cancer examined in the study, American men have a five-year survival rate of 66%, compared with only 47% for European men. American women have a 63% chance of living at least five years after a cancer diagnosis compared with 56% for European women. These data recently released are now the best available. They confirm that American, patients, that, uh, American cancer patients are lucky to be treated here. He actually spoke of Rudy Giuliani uh, and uh, Rudy Giuliani's claim that he was lucky to have been treated for prostate cancer in the United States. So who's right about this and who is wrong? There are data that are being thrown about on either side. We have two scholars he- here that are going to help us get to the bottom of that. The f- our first speaker will be Glenn Whitman, an associate professor of economics at California State oh, yeah. University, Northridge. Uh, professor Whitman is currently on leave from his his post at uh, at Northridge. Uh, where he's on the writing. Where he's uh, working for uh, a television show on Fox called *Fringe*. He's on the writing staff for this uh, science fiction program, which, by the way, can be viewed Tuesday nights on Fox, <laughs> nine o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock Central. So set your DVRs. Uh, but today he's going to help us uh, untangle science from fiction in the debate over which healthcare sector produces the most health, or which nation's healthcare sectors produce the most health, and. Professor Whitman will be followed by Ezra Klein, the uh, associate editor
1: at The American Prospect. Professor Whitman? I assume because there's a microphone right here, I can speak into it. Actually, is it would, it's already better. Okay. It's better all right? It's better. Okay. So Michael just told you about everything that I had planned to say by way of introduction, so I don't have an introduction anymore. <laughs> but he's, uh, he's absolutely correct that it's become something of a hobby amongst people involved in the healthcare care debate to – Make statements about international comparisons of healthcare, saying where healthcare is better. Is it better in the United States? Is it better elsewhere? I'd say that the hobby is probably most popular among those on the left, uh, particularly those who like to quote the World Health Organization's World Health Report 2000, which very famously ranks the United States 37th in the world. And this was featured prominently in Michael Moore's movie Sicko. But the hobby is also practiced a lot on the right. Uh, They are particularly often heard to say that the U.S. has the very best health care in the world, notwithstanding all of those statistics that are often quoted by the left. And we also hear about specific conditions such as those of Rudy Giuliani claiming that the United States is a better place to have any particular condition. Now, this desire to make international comparisons is actually very understandable because what we're interested in is figuring out what is the best healthcare policy. And for the most part, healthcare policy is set at a national level. So if you're going to look for any kind of empirical data or evidence about the effectiveness of different healthcare systems, uh, you have little choice but to make cross national comparisons. Sadly, it turns out that the cross-national evidence is scanty at best. To preview a little bit of what I'm going to say in a moment... The most widely cited studies and statistics are riddled with problems of both data and methodology. And when you take out those studies which are not reliable and look at those that are more reliable, it turns out that most of them are merely suggestive. And, as we're going to see, that they provide mixed evidence about the performance of the United States relative to other countries. It appears that we're doing better in some ways and in worse and worse in others. Now, a short aside – what do we actually expect to get out of these international healthcare care comparisons, ideologically speaking? Because it does seem that in the policy arena, analysts often seem to be seeking some kind of affirmation or confirmation of their own ideological predispositions. And I think that certainly does help to explain uh, the uncritical attitude that many on the left have displayed toward uh, statistics that at least superficially seem to favor government-run single-payer systems. What is a little bit more perplexing to me is the knee-jerk tendency of conservatives and, admittedly, sometimes libertarians as well, to defend the great superiority of the U.S. system. And the reason I find this somewhat perplexing is if the idea was to try to find confirmation of your ideological preconceptions, you'd think that what we'd be looking for is evidence of a free market system that's doing very well. But the fact is that the U.S. does not have a very free market system of health care. It's riddled with government involvement of a great nature at virtually every level. So even if the best evidence indicated that the U.S. system was worse than the rest of the world, which I don't think it does, but even if it did, I don't think that that would necessarily be evidence of market failure. It's entirely possible, I would think, that there is not a simple linear relationship between markets and quality. In other words, even if you thought that a very laissez-faire system of healthcare would perform better than a very government-run system of healthcare. A single-payer system, for instance, you could have a kind of U-shaped relationship where the worst of all possible worlds is somewhere in the middle, and you have some kind of a muddled combination. Indeed, I would argue, in a different context, that uh, that that is largely the case that's happened in the United States. Not that it's necessarily made us worse, but at least in some respects, that we suffer from some unusual combinations of government and markets. So. What are we going to get out of the data? The data is, we hope, if the evidence evidence is good and if the evidence is strong, is going to tell us something about the relative performance of different actual systems as they exist on the ground. But that's not necessarily always going to translate directly into a statement about, ideologically speaking, which pure system is better than which other pure system. So with that said, what is the problem with existing international comparisons of healthcare? Well, most of these comparisons are done using crude aggregate data, meaning things like life expectancy and infant mortality. Now, this is better than a lot of things that you could look at. But the problem here is that health and health care are not the same thing. Healthcare is just one of many factors that affects health. And when you look at these outcome indicators, such as life expectancy, you're looking at an outcome that results from numerous factors that are fa- and it's affected by numerous things other than the quality of the healthcare system. Here's just a partial listing of those other factors. Nutrition, exercise, obesity rates, lifestyle factors such as smoking, drinking and drug use, geography, climate, crime, including homicide rates, traffic accidents. Genetics. It's simply undeniable that these factors can and do affect life expectancies. To take one ju- just one illustrative data point, Japan regularly ranks number one in the world in life expectancy. Japan is also known to have one of the most healthful national diets in the world – heavy in fish and vegetables, and also recent studies. A couple of recent studies have found at least two genes that are associated with heightened longevity, and those genes turn out to be especially common in Japan. So it's hard to believe that this is a coincidence. It surely has something to do with Japan's high rank in the world with respect to life expectancy. Another study showed that adjusting for just one other factor— Deaths due to homicides and traffic accidents caused the United States' rank in life expectancy to jump from 30th in the world to 1st in the world. Now, does that mean that we're really the best? I don't think so, because we'd have to adjust for all of those other factors as well. And, of course, those other factors, once you adjust for them, could actually bring our rank down. The point is that crude life expectancy figures alone tell us very little and possibly nothing. Infant mortality. And for infant mortality is the other crude statistic that we often look at and it's affected by many of the same things. All of those factors that I just talked about above are things that can affect, life, affect infant mortality rates, including lifestyle of the parents. For instance, what is the mother doing during the time that she's pregnant? In addition, it turns out that there are severe data collection problems because the U.S. infant mortality rate is calculated differently from the way that it's calculated in a number of other countries. turns out that in the United States, if you have a baby that is born and then immediately dies, perhaps because it was premature, that that is going to be counted in our infant mortality rate. But a number number of other countries choose to include a birth like that as a case of a stillbirth, and therefore it does not count in their infant mortality rate. So the point is, is we need to be collecting the data in the same way in order for the figures to be comparable. Furthermore, it turns out that infant mortality is affected by the availability of fertility treatments, among other things. And the thing is about fertility treatments is that can often lead to multiple births. Multiple births are often premature, and they're more likely to end up in some kind of death shortly after birth. So the point is, is that something that people want and that they're willing to spend money on, Right? Obviously, people who take the fertility treatments are hoping that they're going to become parents and they're willing to take certain risks, but the result of that is that it can actually decrease the amount of survival uh, upon birth. So the result, again, is that infant mortality, while it might seem superficially to say that the United States is doing terribly, the problem is, is that it has these difficulties of methodology, data collection, that make it very hard to make these comparisons among countries. So... What about the United States being 37th in the world? What about the famous World Health Organization study that famously put us that low, right behind Costa Rica, as I recall? Well, it turns out that this study has... Many of the same flaws that Of the life expectancy And infant mortality statistics That I just pointed out Because of the fact that it relies heavily on them All right, So keep that in the back of your mind Even when the World Health Organization statistics Just focus on those, uh, those matters alone Life expectancy and infant mortality There are going to be problems With the ranking of the United States But furthermore there are a number of other problems Almost uh, too numerous for me to even mention here In the time that I have available Michael tells me that a paper that i wrote is out there somewhere on a on a table so you can pick that up if you want a complete there you go if you want a complete listing or at least a nearly complete listing of all the difficulties that i found with the world health organization study but what i'm going to focus on here is really just one and that's the fact that the world health organization ranking is based on an index And an index, as you know, is going to be a combination of different factors. And as it turns out, there are five different factors that the World Health Organization report relied on to come up with that index. Two of those factors are things that you might actually think of as having to do with health outcomes. One of them is disability-adjusted life expectancy, the problem of which I've already talked about. Another of these is what they call health responsiveness, which is sort of a Grab bag of other characteristics that people care about, such as uh, access, convenience, speed of uh, healthcare delivery, whether the sheets in the hospital are clean, uh, whether the doctor protects their privacy, whether they have their choice of doctor, and so on. So, those are the two factors that have to do with things that we would usually think of as healthcare outcomes. But the other three factors constituting 62.5% of the total weight in this index are actually all measures of inequality of outcomes all right now you can understand why they might want to put it in put that in there because what they're concerned about is the condition of the very worst off in countries However, this is a terrible way to construct an index. Why? Because it's entirely possible for a country to be characterized by great inequality, but overall great outcomes as well. Let me take a very simple example. Suppose we have country A and country B. Country A has uniformly mediocre health care. Country B has 50% good and 50% excellent health care. Who here wants to live in country A? Who here wants to live in country B? Okay, I hope that's pretty much everyone. Other things equal, of course. If, you know, if country A has great beaches, maybe you want to live there anyway, right? But other things equal, you would rather live in country B. It is unambiguously better. But because of the fact that it is also more unequal, because you have some people who are doing better than others, whereas in country A we have everybody doing the same, the result is you get an ambiguous effect on the health index, Country B will perform better because of the overall better health of its citizens, but it will also perform worse because of the fact of the greater inequality, even though that should be an unambiguous outcome. And again, more than 60% of the weight in the World Health Care Index is based on this. And so that's yet another reason why the World Health Organization study is, is unreliable and not a good place to look if you want to see how the United States is doing relative to other countries. Okay. So now that we've talked about the bad statistics, let's talk about the good ones. What would good statistics for international comparison of health care look like? A couple of points. First of all, what we want is studies that are going to control for as many of those other factors as we possibly can, can control for. The ones that are going to affect health, but are not in fact about the healthcare system or results of the healthcare system. Now, this is admittedly an extremely hard thing to do. But at a minimum, it does help us to look at people with specific conditions, say heart disease or cancer, and then say, how long are those people living or what is the mortality rate among people with that condition? And at least by doing that, what you can control for is a lot of the factors that would make it more likely that they would get the disease in the first place. In other words, we need to control for the degree of incidence, which is often a result of a whole variety of other things. Right. For instance, lung cancer, if people are more likely to get lung cancer, if they smoke. All right. Then we want to control for the fact that people have already got the lung cancer rather than saying one country is doing worse than another in terms of its health care, simply because more people smoke in that country. So we need to control for incidents. Now, this does turn out to be a problem, as we'll discover later. It's hard to control for incidents without creating some other problems as well. But the second thing that we need to do is resist the temptation to look for a single killer statistic that says everything that we want to know. Healthcare quality is simply not a single valued variable. It consists of numerous different factors including survival rates for various life-threatening conditions, success rates in treating non-life-threatening conditions which can be very important to us, convenience and speed of service, amenities and healthcare facilities, privacy, innovation, pharmaceutical development and so on. So any attempt that we make to try to combine all of these into a single index is going to uninvol- uh, unavoidably involve making some value judgments you 're going to have to decide how much weight are you going to put on each of those different things, and not all of us are going to put the same weight on them. Even within a country, we 're not necessarily going to all put the same weights on those different factors. My values may be different from yours, and also across countries. People in the United States aren 't necessarily going to put the same different value, same relative values on these factors as do people in the United Kingdom or India or China. So what should we do instead? It's better for us to look at a multiplicity of statistics, have the objective data in front of us, or at least as objective as we can, and then we should put our values on the table instead of trying to hide them within the supposedly objective statistics. Effectively, that's what you had in the World Health Organization report. The index that they created was one that included not just objective data, but a whole lot of value judgments as well, and value judgments that we may not share. So what does the best data that we have available actually show? Well, this is where it's going to get disappointing. Because, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good data. There's a terrible dearth of comprehensive, reliable, and methodologically sound studies. But there are a few, and I'm just going to offer you a brief summary here. But here's the short version. The short version for the U.S. is this. It's a mixed bag. We do well in some areas, and we do poorly in others. And, of course, this shouldn't be surprising. We should expect different healthcare systems to produce different outcomes, and it's not always going to point in the same direction. Heart disease. How do we do in heart disease? The U.S., according to the best studies that we have available, is usually among the best among industrialized countries, but not the best. Sometimes we'll get outperformed by another country like Canada or Australia. But we at least seem to be competitive in that area. How about cancer? Cancer, the studies seem to indicate the U.S. is doing relatively well. The U.S. quite often has the highest survival rates for cancer. For instance, one study showed the U.S. outperforming Europe for 14 out of 16 different types of cancer. Various other studies have reached the same conclusions. However, we have to take these with a grain of salt. And the reason we have to do that is because these statistics may reflect not actual better treatment or better health care of the people, who have been diagnosed, but instead just an earlier diagnosis. And obviously, if you diagnose somebody earlier, even without health-to-health treatment, they're probably going to live longer than somebody who wasn't, going to, wasn't diagnosed until later in their illness. So it's very difficult to separate out these effects. An early diagnosis can lead to better, diet, better treatment, but it can also just increase the time gap between diagnosis and death. And I have yet to see any, any good studies that really control for this effect well to find out how much of the superior performance of the United States is attributable to better health care as opposed to earlier diagnosis. How about hypertension? In general, it seems that the United States... Uh, people with the, de- the condition are better controlled, more often uh, have the treatments that they need to, for their, heart de- or hy- sorry, their hypertension than other industrialized countries to which it's been compared. Again, the statistics are a little weak on this. How about kidney disease? Here's where other countries often outperform us. We tend to do worse than other countries to which we've been compared, both in terms of kidney transplants and kidney dialysis. How about stroke? Diabetes, respiratory disease, traumatic events like car accidents and gunshot wounds, mental illness. Sadly, these are all areas in which, and I, in my judgment, there's simply no good evidence yet indicating whether the United States is doing better or worse than other countries. The studies just haven't been done in a methodologically sound fashion, or they haven't been done at all. And this is indicative of a larger problem, which is lack of good data. If we want to have the information that we need to inform health policy, there's going to have to be a lot more specific studies done of specific conditions to find out how people are doing relatively in different countries. Finally, I think it's worth emphasizing again that survival rates for life-threatening conditions are not the be-all and end-all of healthcare. Healthcare does serve other purposes. We spend lots of money, for instance, on treatments for non-life-threatening conditions, such as acne. Now, I don't think acne's ever killed anybody, but if you have acne, it can be a big problem for you, and it's a great improvement in your quality of life if you can find a way to control that. That's something that never shows up in any of the health statistics. And that's why it can be misleading just to say, well, let's compare performance on life-threatening illnesses in the United States versus elsewhere and how much we spend. Well, gosh, we spend so much more and we're getting less. But we may not be getting less. We might be getting more of other things that simply aren't being measured. What about money spent to ease chronic pain, even if that pain is non-life-threatening? Even if it's not life-threatening, it's a very important matter to the people receiving the pain treatment that they are going to... Get that pain treatment in order to make their life better Convenience also matters If you have to wait an extra month before getting treatment for that annoying rash Then that matters to you Even if that, life th- that rash was never life-threatening And it would never have any effect on life expectancy So in these areas, there is are some evidence Although, again, it's sketchy But it seems to point towards superior outcomes in the United States These are things that the U.S. healthcare system tends to deliver relatively well so what's the bottom line? We should not expect a single statistic that is going to show that the U.S. is definitely better than the w- rest of the world or definitely worse. Reality is going to be messy, and health care quality has numerous factors. And it's entirely possible for us to do well on some of these factors and poorly on others. What we need to do is report these results as honestly and accurately as possible if we want to have a well-informed health policy
2: debate. Thanks. So about two weeks ago, Mike emailed me and said he'd like me to come out here and uh, sort of be the liberal opposition at a Cato forum on health care outcomes. And I thought, sure, I, I sort of know how that'll go. I arranged my studies. I was ready to argue that the, that the U.S. is terrible because uh, I hate America. And then about four days ago, he emailed me Glenn's paper. And about a day later, I sort of called him in a panic. And I said, Mike, the paper's fine. I basically agree with all of it. I, th- I think Glenn's right. I think that healthcare data is messy stuff. I mean, infant mortality and general mortality statistics are incredibly incredibly misleading. And the broad evidence suggests that you're probably better off uh, getting treated for breast cancer in America. You're probably better off getting treated for heart disease in Canada. And if you're worried about heart disease, what you really don't want to do is get born in America. And that's basically where we end up. And when I was sort of reflecting on this, I, I realized that it's sort of weird that I thought that, that it meant Coming to a conservative or libertarian forum on healthcare necessarily meant that I w- that there would be sort of a disagreement on the worth of the American healthcare system, and I began thinking about something David Frum wrote in his book *Comeback Conservatism*, and he wrote, "Who was it who agreed the conservatives should defend the dysfunctional American healthcare system from all criticism? Who volunteered to take the bullet for every crummy HMO and overpriced surgeon in the country?" Who decided that it was okay with us for tens of millions of Americans to lack health care coverage? And frankly, it's a good question. Um, On the question of who comes out ahead, America spends much, 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 much more than anyone else. To give the sort of stark comparison, between America and Britain, we spend, according to the the OECD data, in I believe this is 07 numbers, we spent $6,714 per person. For healthcare, 6,714. 6, Britain spent 2,760. That's a difference of about $4,000 per person per year. Uh, I looked that up today, and, and granted, these are, are rough economic times, but even now, that could buy every person in America 5.3 ounces of pure gold a year if you could just equalize the spending. So it would be really weird if, given the fact that you could buy what we're buying plus uh, five ounces of pure gold, every year, if we didn't have, if we weren't at least competitive with other nations. But that isn't enough to be competitive when you're spending, in many cases, more than twice as much as 80. You have to do better than that. The question with American healthcare is not whether or not we can survive in this system and uh, many times even prosper. It's whether we are getting good value. It's whether American healthcare is acceptable or not acceptable. And if we could sort of have agreement on that question, then we could – get into what will certainly be an even more bitter fight over whether or not we go to a a socialized utopia or a dystopic free market um, system. But at least we could begin talking about reform and trying to get to some level of common ground and, very importantly, which Glenn points out, the first step, which is spending the money to get the data. Because right now we're not doing that. That gets caught up in the same argument over whether or not we even sort of need this data, and we, we really do. So, I'd say again, the question is value. Um, there's a study that uh, Mike sent around and has sort of gotten a lot of press in healthcare circles in recent years, which is a study of what they call meanable mortality. One of the big problems with a lot of studies Glenn looks at is that they do not control for mortality, for illness, for death that cannot actually be prevented by the healthcare system. If I get in a car accident, that's not the fault of my primary care doctor charging me too much money unless I was going to my job to pay for that. There's, if I get shot in the street, if I have a piano fall on my head as if I were a character out of a cartoon, that's again, it's not the fault of our healthcare system. So you need to look at things that, conditions that could be prevented if you had had timely and affordable contact with a doctor. So the researchers attempted to look at that, and they um, looked at what they called trends in death considered amenable to healthcare before age 75, between 97 and 98, and then again between 2000 and 2003, and they compared it in the U.S. and 18 other industrialized countries. What they found was that between 97 and 98, the U.S. was fourth from the worst on amenable mortality, fourth from the worst. By 2002 to 2003, we were the actual worst. And this is actually interesting because there were some reforms around this time in the U.K. and Ireland. They began instituting a lot of pay for performance, and that appears to sort of have had a real effect. But we were fourth from the worst, and then we didn't improve at all, which is actually a worrying thing in our system. It suggests that we lack um, responsiveness to better data. We didn't improve, which I think should, should concern people. Um, They figured that if we had been able to reduce amenable mortality to the average rate achieved by the three top-tier countries, so not that there's no amenable mortality, just that there's only as much amenable mortality as there is in France, we would have saved 101,000 lives over this period, 101,000, big number. I'm not arguing the study is perfect, but uh, I think most of us here would agree it's better than most of what we have, and it is very worrying. You can't you can't look in that study and see anything that will that will make your heart sing. Now sometimes you get into this conversation and end up in, in a sort of weird side conversation. Okay, maybe American healthcare isn't very good, but other people's healthcare is very unpleasant. You have to wait a long time. That may be true. Um, there is evidence that particularly for surgery. Uh, America has longer wait times than certain types of universal systems, mainly socialized, mainly um, Canada and Britain. In um, Germany and France and Japan, there are no wait times to speak of. But one thing that I'm always sort of struck by in that data, there's a sort of a flip side to that coin, right? Imagine you're you're the urban poor in London. Your hospitals, the hospitals you go to are overcrowded. As you would expect, you don't have a whole lot of political power. And you go in and you need a, a elective surgery, which is where waiting times tend to manifest. And they say, listen, you're going to wait four months. Or let's say it's really terrible. They say, listen, we're going to replace your hip in a year. That's pretty bad. Um, let's say you are that same urban poor in Chicago. And you go into the doctor and you say, God, my, my hip is terrible. Um, and they say, you need a hip replacement. Say, so who's your insurer? say, I don't have insurance. They say, okay, well, you can't have hip replacement. So in our data, what that shows up with is zero waiting time. They did not wait at all to get hip replacement because they never got one. You could argue the opposite case that it should show up as an infinity sign, but that would probably be hard to put into the model. But the question of waiting times and the question it ends up being colliding, I'd argue, with the question of whether or not you get treatment. I'd say that you're better off being the guy who waits a year and a half for his hip replacement in London, but you get it. Then you are being the person who never gets it in America, and the f- third note on all that is that you're really better off being the person in France who just goes and you get a hip replacement, and that would probably be my, my preferred my preferred look at it. Um, but I would argue the waiting times argument is there, but really, really overstated. Now, the other sort of implication of the waiting times argument, of the responsiveness argument, that American healthcare, because so much pricier, a more consumer oriented society, that we, it's sort of better at dealing with people, that it's more sort of uh, adjusted to our needs. And you would think you'd be able to see that on survey data on satisfaction with the healthcare care system. I mean, that's presumably where that would come up. So you do have that data. And you can, of course, you can, again, sort of argue that there are cultural differences here, that the British have a lower expectation for their life. Andrew Sullivan made this argument on his blog. I don't know that there's a way to prove that or not. But when you ask people in different countries, would you like to have only minor changes to your healthcare system? Would you like to fundamentally uh, change it? Or would you like to completely rebuild it? You get very sort of starkly suggestive answers. I mean, the one thing you do find is that nobody's really that happy. In every country, pluralities of people would like fundamental change. And you know, you can argue, and Bob Blunden and Harvard will make this argument, what does fundamental change mean? It probably means somebody gives you more money. But Whatever fundamental change means, everybody would like some fundamental change. We are a a, a people-oriented towards progress. But what you do find is that Americans are much more unhappy than anyone else, much more likely to ask for total change, and much less likely to say minor changes. So to just compare a couple, um, only 16%, so less than one-fifth of Americans, say we only need minor changes. About 26% of Canadians say the same, so a quarter of them say they're happy. And um, the numbers are similar for Germany and the UK. Now go down the n- now go down the response line. Go to completely rebuild. 34% of Americans, so more than one-third, say we need to completely rebuild. 12% of Canadians say the same. Um, and 15% of the British say the same. The only people who are above 20%, aside from us at 34, are the Germans at 27%. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what accounts for that, but... They're still not as high as us, which is just to say that that's also... You, you can sort of quibble with the data, but it does suggest that we are not more satisfied or certainly do not believe ourselves to be more satisfied with what we're getting. And so you sort of end up at the next spot, which is like, okay, well, maybe it's pretty unpleasant and has a lot of anxiety, um, and maybe it's not really that good, but maybe it would be cheaper. But as we sort of already discussed, it's not cheaper. Um, and so we sort of end up in this weird comparison where we can talk about which system is sort of better on the margin, right? And it, it feels to me a little bit like arguing with a cam- between a Camry and an Accord. The Camry's a little bit bigger. The Accord's a little bit faster. You can, you can go back and forth. I, you know, it's funny. I was going to uh, – I, I didn't want to just have sort of foreign cars here, you know, so I was looking for like a GM or a Ford car to put in this comparison. But that would have actually been loading the deck. <laughs> uh, but you can – some things are better, some things are worse. And you can make your arguments on how you weight what you want. But if then I say the Camry costs $15,000 and the Accord costs $25,000, your, your choice becomes quite clear. So the question of um, the healthcare system, I think, becomes it's not of mortality, it's not of satisfaction, it's not of cost. You do end up in a weird place of how much does healthcare matter. Because one thing that I think you do see, if you're having such great disparities between a healthcare system where we spend $6,700 a year per person, and one where we spend 2700 per year per person? And is it maybe health care spending above a certain level actually doesn't matter that much? And I'd say there's a lot of evidence supporting this claim, that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that healthcare spending on the margin is actually further dollars are not doing anybody all that much good. And you see this in this country, too, by the way. Peter Orzag, who just was made director of the Office of Manage- Management and Budget, talks a lot about the Dartmouth <coughs> Atlas Project, which tracked Medicare payment data in different states, and compared that to outcomes data, and essentially found there's huge cost disparity, huge cost disparity between Minnesota and Florida, say. But no clear relationship between on outcome. That even in this country, even in this healthcare system, when we spend more, we don't get more. Forget versus Britain, versus Florida. And that would imply that when you're dealing with healthcare reform, and this is a little bit beyond the, the purview of, of this. Of this Talk, but I, I want to put it out there. When you're dealing with healthcare reform, there's an argument I think that is a compelling one, and at the very least should be taken seriously, that you want to err on the side of spending less, not more. We err on the side very heavily of spending more, not less. And that is money that comes from somewhere it comes from wages, comes from leisure, comes from education, comes from food stamps, comes from flat screen TVs. It's not clear to me that healthcare is a place where you have extremely efficient use of funds. Um, when, you're, when you're getting into high dollar numbers. And so I'd say that if you begin ratcheting back, what we're seeing in the data is that we don't have any sort of clear advantage over systems that are spending about half as much, and I don't think that you could really get there um, you're dealing with a lot of sort of culturally ingrained stuff. I don't think we have the sort of po- political structure that could accommodate such radical change and radical impositions on doctors and drug companies and you get into questions of innovation. But you can certainly cut some level of waste and some level of, level of overspending in our system. And it's not clear you'd actually pay a cost. That the, sort of, the sort of quiet sub-theme of a lot of these conversations is you'd have terrible rationing and then terrible things would happen. But there's a good question about whether or not when you were rationing, anything bad would happen at all. And you could argue that you could ration by waiting lines, you can ration by income, or you can ration to some people want to, and then you have to decide whether you want to call this rationing. And you can ration by sort of effectiveness data of different procedures. And then the question of whether or not your insurer won't let you get a lumbar surgery because there's no real evidence that lumbar surgeries work becomes a, a fairly good question. Is that rationing? I don't really think it is, but I guess people can disagree on that. But I guess where I'd end up here is that what I think we see in the data if there's, not a clear, if there's not a clear answer on, who's, on whose system is better, then the cost disparity makes it clear that our system, as currently composed, is not acceptable. And that doesn't necessarily imply how you fix it. Mike and Glenn and I would probably all disagree on that question. But it is not acceptable. And I think it would be a, a good step forward in the debate if, if next time I, I got a call from AEI, I didn't think that we'd be having a conversation over whether it is acceptable or not. So I'll leave it there.
0: Thank you, Ezra. You, you reminded me of, um, of, a, of a, an issue of our online magazine, Cato Unbound, where uh, a prof- professor at George Mason University named Robin Hansen argued that w- with a couple of, uh, of leading uh, health care researchers that the United States could actually cut health care spending in half – Using either using very blunt tools, not trying very hard to differentiate between what the good stuff and the useless stuff. Using blunt tools, whether they be global budgets and government rationing or cost sharing, health savings accounts and forcing everyone to pay a lot more out of pocket. But we could cut health spending in half and it would have almost no impact on health outcomes. That doesn't mean that people would be as happy, but health outcomes as a measure would not be affected. And I'm um, I'm always I'm always tickled when I I hear that um, that France and Germany don't have problems with waiting because uh, my understanding is that France and Germany don't measure waiting times. And so I think there are really unexploited opportunities here for the United States uh, in international comparisons when it comes to our main failing, which is the uninsured. We could just not measure the uninsured, and that problem would disappear as well. I tease uh, because I know that there, there, uh, there, are, some, um, there are some measurements of, of, of waiting in those countries. I wanted to if, – if you want to respond to that, the, go ahead. A, I, I had a the question data you
2: I'm using way. comes from cross-national surveys, not from France and Germany reporting. So you're dealing with sti- the statistically um, sampled questions of people in the healthcare systems, how long do you wait? And they did that data that from the Commonwealth uh, Fund, and they did that – it that way to get away from the problem of how people report what the the reports are standard across the countries so
0: point taken i wanted to uh, i wanted to open it up to questions So i was uh if you can please uh wait for the microphone to come around do we have microphones and when you do uh get the microphone please uh state your name and affiliation and, and make sure you're asking a question
3: thank you um gentleman in the back um, two brief questions. The first is the difficulty about preventive care. Uh, you can't, a doctor, in, arguably, diet and exercise will prevent or delay a whole host of conditions, but there's simply no way of proving that an individual patient's zealous following of diet and exercise absolutely prevented him from contracting a certain costly disease or two. And the other aspect that neither of you have discussed is the stage of human life where health care is spent. And I understand that say that, that pre- premature infants are very expensive. The end cost in the end of life is very expensive. So how would you integrate this into... Would it not basically refuse care under certain conditions? Would this not... This would make people unhappy who had, say, an aged parent or grandparent or who just gave birth to a premature infant who, at, at 20 weeks, but would this not have some factor in, in, to be taken into account?
1: Okay. Um, a quick response on the, uh, the front of preventive care. You know, you're absolutely right that that is a great source of difficulty, and it's really for two different reasons. One is because it's hard to say how much of a contribution the good exercise or nutrition has on the health outcomes. And second, because even if we knew that, it would be hard to say how much of that was caused by your doctor hectoring you to exercise more or to eat better. And, so, and also there's a question of whether we want that to be what our doctors do, right? Some people would rather not go to their doctor and have their doctor give them uh, hell about the, how much they're not exercising and so on. So that's something that's uh, very difficult to parse out both on a data level and also on a value level, I would say. Uh, with respect to uh, when the money is spent, you're absolutely right. That is a huge issue. And I think, I think it tends to be similar across countries. That is, regardless of how much you spend, it is the case that a whole lot of what you spend does go into the two categories that you talked about. Um, but I'd be very curious to see the comparison. I don't know. I haven't seen that comparison. Maybe Ezra has. Across countries? Across countries, what, say, what percentage goes to end-of-life procedures or something like that.
2: I haven't seen it either. Um, If
0: if I may, I'd like to ask Glenn a question uh, that came from Ezra's remarks. What about uh, mortality that's amenable to medical care, that that health affairs study that he mentioned, where what you're trying to do is control for things that health care could not have affected because we sort of have a unique barrier to care in the United States in that we have tens of millions of people without health insurance. A lot of them get medical care. Uh, and other countries have other barriers to care, but this seems like a, a measure that would that would capture the downside of having tens of millions of Americans without access without i 'm sorry without health insurance they may, they, they may delay access to care. Um, what about that measure would how does How does that rate uh, among all the other
1: measures that we 've got right so I, I think that 's a good start. You know, the first thing you want to do is take out the car accident deaths, which have nothing to do with the healthcare system and a lot to do with uh, the highway system. Uh, but I think the main problem is that it still doesn't control for incidents. It still doesn't control for, say, the fact that if Americans are fatter, we're probably more often going to have heart disease in the first place. And yet heart disease is some- considered something that's amenable to health care treatment. Therefore, it will be included in those statistics. So. Uh, essentially what that, stu- uh, that study does is it takes a step in the right disor- direction by controlling for some things, but it doesn't control for some of the really important stuff we'd like to control for. And one other factor, I just want to throw it in there, and maybe I sound like a broken record here, but non-life-threatening conditions matter too. And as long as you're looking at mortality, you're only looking at life-threatening conditions. You're not considering whether the healthcare system is curing your acne or getting rid of that rash or whatever. And to take the hip replacement story that Ezra was talking about, because I think it's a great story and I think you made a great point with it. But what's interesting is hip replacements, not necessary to save your life right? And so uh, the concern about whether a country gives you a, a hip replacement replacement you have to wait a long time to get or no hip replacement at all is something that's not going to show up in the data that we're typically looking at in the first place.
2: Uh, I, I agree with that. I'd make one other point that what you can see that does take some of that into account is, again, I, I actually find survey data useful because it's not perfect, because it's not sort of objective healthcare data, but it is how people feel. And you do have a lot of cross-national survey data on pain, which is a sort of interesting way of getting at some of this. Again, pain doesn't account for incidents. There's going to be more pain if people have more health care problems, if people are more obese and have more leg problems. But it is one way to try and get at it. And the data I've seen has – what you really see in America is not a lot more pain, but a lot more pain among people with less income. That's where you see a huge increase. Uh, because presumably they have less uh, contact with the healthcare system. But broadly speaking, I I, I agree. I don't know which way it cuts. It isn't clear to me that in Europe people are riddled with acne, but maybe they are.
0: (laughs) Okay, next question. And, And we've got a lot, and I want to be able to get to all of them. So the briefer we can keep them, the better. How about Arnold? Yeah, it, it, it struck me that if you did this with education and you looked at comparisons, and we, we, we probably spend a lot more than other countries and don't get much more out of it, um, would you then argue that we should spend less on education?
2: Um, uh, would I argue that we should spend less on education?
0: If, if it turned out, the studies showed pretty much the same thing, that we, that we spend more and don't get any better outcomes.
2: Yeah. If education were health care, maybe, but... I the, I mean, because I'm not an education expert, it's hard for me to say what the studies show. I have no – I think we should spend a whole lot less in, in education in, say, Washington, D.C., where the money isn't obviously getting us any better outcomes. It isn't clear to me that in the aggregate we should spend it less at all. But as I say, I don't know the issue, and so it's not something I could answer with any sort of specificity for you. You should speak to my colleague, Dana Goldstein. Okay. Uh, on the aisle here, sir.
3: My name is Craig Olson, I'm a retired foreign service officer. I, I was uh, interested from uh, Mr. Klein, uh, the, uh, the the two numbers that you put out a couple times, 6,700 and mm-hmm. 2,700, is that uh, total expenditure from all sources in the country divided by population, or is it simply out of pocket from each person?
2: It's the first one. It's total source of expenditure by population, and it is, I, I think I neglected to mention this, adjusted for purchasing power which is to say adjusted cross nationally.
0: (laughs) Well well done. How about right next to you while while you're there?
2: The purported uh, huge difference in what we spend on medical care versus other countries, which to me, hearing you talk, both of you, I'm not convinced that there is a, a way to really understand that. But let's say there is a greater cost in the American system. How much of it do you think is attributable to our legal system? And how much of it is due to what Mr. Whitman referred to as kind of the worst of all situations. We seem to have a, it's a sort of a mongrelized blend that has aspects of worse. For instance, medical people tell me that the, the amount of time they spend on form work for government and insurance companies is just astronomical. Um, you know, h- how much of these things are we paying for instead of actual medical care? I really don't know. It's an excellent question, but I really don't know. I can, I can say a little bit on it. Um. One is the medical malpractice question is a tricky one, when you, which is presumably what you're talking about on legal fees. The, it gets hard because it's very hard to measure defensive medicine. We're not spending that much for the actual health care healthcare legal costs. You're dealing with less than half of 1% of American healthcare spending. I think it's about 0.46 in the most recent data I saw. But you get into a question of how, much, um, how many tests are ordered that aren't needed because they're trying to protect. And their estimates range from anything from very little, and they'd be doing the same thing anyway, because all the other incentives go in that direction, to quite a bit. And as far as I've seen, nobody has a very good way for disaggregating, disaggregating that data.
0: One, one um, attempt to answer that question was made in a, in a study published by Cato, I think it was in 2003, by Professor Christopher Conover from Duke University. And he estimated that uh, in 2002, uh, health care regulation imposed a cost of about $162 billion on uh, the economy, uh, net of any benefits that it provides. And about half of that, about $80 billion, came from the medical malpractice system. In other words, cost in in excess of benefits. That's one estimate. There there have been others. Um, uh, Professor
2: Book. Thanks. Thanks. How much of this difference in spending across countries do you think is attributable to a difference in amount of health care delivered, the quantity, versus a difference in price, the amount paid for an individual health care service? It's more the latter than the former, according to data. Uwe Reinhardt and Gerard Anderson, if you're interested in looking this up, have done a lot of the work on this. They publish in Health Affairs. They had an article a couple years back called It's the Price is Stupid?, um, which made this argument. They argue that utilization is not that different cross-nationally. They Their data to me was convincing it's possible other people could come up with different indices. Um, and they say that it's a per-unit price that's very, very different, which to some degree would be expected, by the way. We have a higher GDP per person in these countries, and we, um, we pay people more. We pay our doctors more than they pay their doctors beyond the sort of just difference in GDP. But it does seem that when you're trying to – get this out, that the bigger question is how much we pay per unit of health care, not how much more health care we consume. So if that's the case, it shouldn't be surprising that we get about the same outcomes because we're getting about the same amount of health care. We're just spending more for it. I would agree with you.
0: (laughs) There's also another uh, interesting dynamic, though, which is uh, when you look at the Medicare data, as Ezra mentioned, you are getting, in some areas of the country, Far more for, uh, services; uh, the quantity is much higher in Florida than it is in Minnesota. That's what's driving the spending, <clears throat> and there's no difference in health outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, uh,
3: my name is uh, Bill Lason, and I'm a retired physicist.
0: And I'd like to ask the question: Have these statistics, uh, that, such as you've quoted, related? not just to the whole population, but to what's been called the two populations in this country, one which is more affluent and covered by various employer-managed systems and government-provided health care systems, versus uh, immigrant and low-income populations which have no insurance. And you, of course, mentioned that, but have there been good statistics to compare the outcomes and so
3: forth with those two populations?
1: There have been attempts, uh, none that I think is particularly effective. Um, It's a relevant question, but, again, usually the way it ends up getting treated is uh, including uh, inequality measures of some kind or another. And uh, the problem with that, I mean, I talked about some of the problems with that earlier, but uh, one difficulty that arises there is that when you look at inequality There are two ways you can be uh, unequal, right? You can have a lot of people who are below the average, and you can also have a lot of people who are above the average, right? And so there are some of these measures that, for instance, will punish the United States because of the fact that Bill Gates doesn't spend enough for health care, right? Because it's... The amount he has to spend on health care is such a small percentage of his income, and so that's bad on an inequality measure, and so we get punished for that, as well as getting punished for the fact that, say somebody low on the income ladder spends a an especially large percentage of their income on health care as, uh, as far as outcomes, yeah, I believe that there is evidence that outcomes are are often worse for uh, lower income people, which is not surprising, but i don 't know how good it is, yeah do you mean that Bill Gates consumes less? Uh, a, a, a smaller
0: fraction of his income in health care or that he pays, he purchases less because his his income is going to be uh, taxed to pay for health care for others, and that uh, and the amount that it's taxed,
1: I imagine, would rise as his income rises. And so, uh, right. do you, are you but talking about his still consumption? ends up being he gets penalized not because not a large his, enough percentage? You know, so the fact that it's still percentage wise, the amount of his income that goes to it goes to paying for health care – Ends up being
2: not so. It's
0: not his consumption. You are talking about the the actual percentage of his income. I
2: I just add to that. There's an interesting study done about a year ago, which looked at what does it cost people. What is the cost differential between insured uh, Americans who make the transition to Medicare and uninsured? And the idea being that is there deferred health care? Are they less healthy? Is there deferred health care? And, and as Glenn, I think, would correctly point out, there's some question of how you map this on to the fact that folks from uninsured populations also tend to correlate with folks from populations that are a bit sicker. But uh, there's a very, very high spending spike with them, which you don't see among low income folks who had insurance and then went on to Medicare. So that's suggestive in that. And it's also suggestive on a cost issue that the uninsured population, about 50 million, then the underinsured, about, depending how you measure it, 15 to 40 million. They're counted in our denominator, too. So when you're asking how much we spend per capita, they spend a lot less per capita. But they're actually – so in a weird way, what we spend per insured person in this country is actually much higher than 6700 where when you're dealing with Canada, you're actually dealing with a sort of a straight denominator. Everybody has health care, and so you're really not um, – so you don't have quite the same distortion. It's, uh, I don't know what the figure would look like if you were able to account for that, if you accounted for that. But my suspicion is it would be quite a bit higher and, and quite stark. Okay, next question on the aisle here, gentlemen.
3: Uh, Bruce Greenberg, uh, Brinkman Publishing. Um, I read some years ago about the Tennessee, state of Tennessee's effort to provide
2: health care to its citizens. And my understanding was that the cost providing this rapidly grew beyond the state of Tennessee's capacity to handle it. Um, now, if we ask and we go to a single-payer system, is it likely we would have an experience more resembling Tennessee than, let's say, in terms of cost, the experience of Canada or U.K.? So here's what happened in Tennessee, and it's happened with every state healthcare initiative that's ever been tried, Massachusetts, Maine, Portland, whoever you want to look at. Healthcare is countercyclical. When, when you're dealing with a health care reform like Tennessee, with the main spending you're dealing with is subsidies for insurance. They're expanding coverage to a low-income population. States cannot deficit spend. The federal government can. So what always happens, it's just happened in Hawaii. It's going to happen in mass. It's, it's, what all, it's what killed the California reforms because they tried to pass it amidst a recession. When recessions hit, state revenues go down, but the number of people who need subsidies goes way up. You can't cover that shortfall, and they take the program apart. What did not happen in ten care was an explosion in cost. What happened in ten care was an explosion in government um, commitment that it then simply could not cover during during down periods. They didn't have they didn't have any sort of dedicated financing for it. And without that, um, without some sort of dedicated financing that actually went up and down times, which is hard to figure out how you do it, you, you can't sustain it. I don't think health care reform is um, is doable on a state level for that reason.
1: But to uh, address the issue of what it would look like in the United States if we had a single-payer system or something like it, I I, I think it's uh, fatuous to assume that if we adopted – Canada's system, that suddenly our spending would drop to what Canada's was. Or if we do- adopted the U.K. system, suddenly our spending would drop to what the United Kingdom's spending is. You have to take into account the particular characteristics of the population and the political system. And my personal prediction, and obviously there's no way to verify this until we actually do it, my prediction is, is that if we had a single-payer system, we'd actually end up spending more. Because nobody wants to tolerate any kind of limitation on how much health care they get. Right now, they face some limitation in terms of when their insurance company cuts them off or if they don't have insurance, they face a, a cap real early. Uh, but there are some limits in terms of uh, their own incomes and so on. But as soon as the, the limit is just how far uh, the federal government is willing to go into debt or how much they're willing to tax people generally, I don't think you're, you're going to see much of a limit there. And so I think there's every reason to believe that once we say that people are entitled to health care, uh, that that entitlement is going to grow. And that's what we've seen with every entitlement we've ever had in this country, with the existing health care entitlements that we have, such as uh, such as Medicare. So I don't think a, a single-payer system would actually reduce the amount of spending that we did in this country.
0: Sir. Tom Donilon with Barron's Magazine. W- the Rudy Giuliani question, that is, uh, where would you like to live if you had prostate cancer? Where would you like to live if you had heart disease? And state by state in this country, as well as, uh, with, you know, which relates to the Minnesota versus Florida uh, results, can where would you go for data to answer questions like that?
1: Um. I think uh, you'd want to be looking at these individual studies, which often show up in uh, magazines like the New England Journal of Medicine and so on, uh, that are looking at that particular condition, and they're saying, what is the mortality rate for people uh, who have been diagnosed with that condition? Uh, That said, um, and I think I'm going to make a a Kleinian point here, uh, but of course, it's, it's going to depend also on your insurance status. So if you're uninsured, then it almost doesn't matter uh, what condition it is that you came up with. You might w- rather have the, even if it's a lower quality of care in another country, if you can get that lower ca- quality care for free, then you'd rather live in that other country, right? Um, so, uh, But on the other hand, if you're looking at it purely in terms of am I going to survive this, you might rather
2: end up in the United States. I would just add that on an operational level, if you're worried about li- actually sort of where you should live in this country, what you look at is hospital data. Um, that's the big thing because you can actually find mortality data for certain uh, procedures in various hospitals. And the differences are actually tremendous or very, very surprising. And there's been really good studies done showing that if you live near a hospital with good cardiovascular care. You just won't die from heart disease at the rates you will if you live three miles over. Same socioeconomic class, same environment, all of it. But the hospital does not have as good sort of angioplasty facilities and so on and so forth. So if you're just sort of wondering about where you can get good care, try to figure out what you're likely to come down with and then look at the uh, hospital data. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Ma'am, did you have a question? We have another question over here. I was favoring this side for a while, now I'm favoring that side, and we'll come back. Uh,
2: we're over the left. (laughs) I love it. for
4: sure. It's a good point. <laughs> Linda Greenberg, uh, Brinkman Publishing. I wanted to know if there are any cross-national studies that looked at income levels and compared <laughs> health conditions because all of the data so far, you're really putting everyone together, and you have such either homogeneous or heterogeneous populations that really to condense everything is misleading. So I don't know whether there are studies that try and compare just within each income level, because then you get a much better idea of how, um, what services you got for what money.
2: Not that I've seen, but I would love to see that. There is one with England and America, and it found that, um, folks in England in the, in the low income categories are basically about as healthy as folks in America in the high income categories. Uh, it's a, it's a discomforting study. (laughs) What does it show in the high income categories? That they're much healthier. <laughs> that they're healthier. That they're, so they have lower incidence of diabetes, of heart disease, of stroke, of cancer, et cetera. So comparing
1: apples to apples, so comparing high income in England, they're doing better. Comparing low income they're do- in England, they're doing better. Yes. what you're saying. So, so that, then I'm looking at the, I mean, obviously that's affected by all of these other factors right. that I've been talking about. And so I guess my question would be, how much of a difference are you seeing? Are you seeing a much larger difference between uh, between the United States and England when you look at low income than when you look at high income?
2: You know, I don't know offhand. I haven't... the study came out a couple of years ago. I haven't looked at it closely, okay. but I can get you that.
3: Okay.
2: Sir, so in the back on this side.
1: Governor National Conference of State Legislatures. Wanted to expand a little on the talk about Tennessee. What some of our members have told us is one of the big problems with care is
3: uninsured citizens from other states would come in to try to take advantage of services. And I was wondering if you had seen any kind of similar issues in Europe, especially given the ease of movement between countries, if some of the countries we've been talking about,
1: if people come from would cross borders to take advantage of services or take advantage of better payment options.
3: And if this is a reflection, perhaps, of quality in one way, or of a uh, cost issue.
2: It happened in SICO, uh, in Europe. You're asking just sort of intra-Europe? That I don't know.
0: Um, I, I mentioned that because in the movie, in Michael Moore's movie, Sicko, he follows a woman who, mo- who goes to Canada. I don't
2: think she moves to Canada, right. but she's an American who goes to Canada to t- try to access free medical. Right, but from America. It, right. Is what, and you're, you're curious about internal to Europe. Do I have that right? Yeah, I haven't seen anything. Right. That- what was odd in
1: that movie, by the way, is, of course, they show, you know, in typical Michael Moore style, he only shows it in one direction. Mm-hmm. It's always cherry-picking to prove his point. Yes. And in that case, it was showing one person who went to Canada to get health care and no people from Canada going to the U.S. to get healthcare,
2: even though that does happen all the time. Yeah, there are studies on both sides of that, and all the studies I've seen... Say that very, very few people go from either Canada to America or America to Canada. I think the one in on Canada to America is, or yeah, Canada America is called Canadians in the mist, <laughs> in
0: footprints in the, the, very, footprints in the snow, or oh, something, it's something like, like that. It's it's something, something very,
2: very But then you get in; it's like the abstract is Canadian healthcare utilization. Well, the poetry the poetry leaves healthcare studies very quickly. Let me tell you, <laughs> um, woman in the back in the pink,
4: Maria Grote. I'm a nurse practitioner in the ER at Northwest Hospital. And it's about how much money we're spending per patient. Um, how much are we looking at? Because we do defense, we practice defensive medicine all the time. It's just kind of standard of care. And I've never known. I've never practiced in France. So I don't know what it's like there. But I've never not practiced fully defensive medicine all the time. But it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. I mean, I'd rather pay for a CT scan than pay for a lawsuit. So all the extra tests that we do, I don't honestly know how much they all cost. But I'd certainly rather do that than miss anything or get sued or lose your license. Um, I know that the cost of lawsuits is huge, but the CT scans, we just automatically do them all of the time. How much? How do we factor in the amount of money that it costs us on provider side to provide that health care? So if your malpractice is, you know, $4 billion a year, how do we look at that number? And then how do we look at how much most of our patients feel, uh, I want to say this diplomatically, um... We have high expectations for not feeling pain no matter how we take care of ourselves. So every asthma patient I get that smokes a pack a day expects a full workup for that. And every 300-pound patient with knee pain bilateral expects a full workup for that. So our – and since I've never practiced anywhere else, are our, our American expectations different than other countries?
1: Um, as far as how that number is included, I believe it does get included just in the aggregate amount uh, that uh, you know, goes in the numerator of the statistic before we divide by the population. So it does get included in there when it gets broken out in the data. Uh, it, some of that ends up getting paid for by, by the uh, payments that people make for either out-of-pocket or from their insurance companies. Some of it might fall in the category that is called uncompensated care of some kind or another. But it does get included in the aggregate statistic. As far as whether Americans have different expectations uh, than uh, people in other countries, I'm not even sure how we would verify that. I mean, I have this vague sense that it's probably true. But – I'm not even sure what data confirming that would look like. How do you find out that people have – high? because a a survey only measures people's satisfaction or dissatisfaction relative to whatever is their set point, uh, which is one of the difficulties with with survey data. So I don't know how we'd verify that. Uh, By the way, if I can make one sort of a side moment because I wanted to – as long as we're talking about surveys – uh, one difficulty with surveys is this issue of people possibly having different uh, expectations. But another issue is that you should expect that people are going to have different kinds of dissatisfaction, particularly if you say to Americans not just do you like this aspect or do you like that aspect of your system. Do you, you say, do you think we need to reform the American health care system, or are you satisfied with, uh, with health care? And they might say no, uh, say, no, I'm not satisfied. Yes, I want to reform the system. But why? Well, presumably for a lot of them it's because of the high prices, Well, are the high prices going to even show up in other countries? Even if they spent as much as we did, they wouldn't be showing up as complaints that people have about their health care system. It would be showing up as complaints that people have about their high tax rates. Uh, and there, there is some evidence that, say, when you compare the United States versus Canada, they are more satisfied with their health care system and less satisfied with how much they have to pay for out of their uh, pockets uh, to the government. So you shouldn't expect the dissatisfactions to be equal across countries even if the performance of the systems is equally good.
2: I'd add one thing on um, – I, I agree with some of the thing I'm and some of it not. But I'd add one thing on this story you just recounted, which I think is sort of illuminating as well, because you're right about defensive medicine and the difficulty of getting at it in survey data. As you also mentioned, there's no check on sort of ordering another CT scan. It doesn't hurt um, the doctor at all. It's very easy to do. You, I, I, I'm not saying this is why you ever do it, but it's fee for service, so money is actually made with more testing, which is not why uh, – I don't think it's a huge factor why more testing happens. But, again, it's not a um, – The the money doesn't dissuade you from it. Compare that to England, where doctors are paid not by fee-for-service but, generally speaking, by capitation, where an English doctor will have, say, maybe 50 patients, right? And the government will give them X amount of dollars, and X is a constant per patient. And the more they order for that patient, the less money they have. They essentially make money on what they have left over after they've treated everyone. So the incentive for those doctors is to not order care. The incentive for our doctors is to order care, and the outcome is essentially what you would expect. Well, I, 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 it, well, as we see, though, it's actually not clear that it matters. I think what's, I think what's interesting
0: problem. is the outcome is not what a lot of people would expect. A lot of people would expect that in the U.K. they would do a lot worse because they're not getting as much medical yes, care. Yes, this is correct. But uh, what's, uh, what, what I think is so interesting about what uh, Glenn Whitman has found is that it, that doesn't seem to be the case. We spend a lot more here, and it doesn't appear to make us healthier. Different regions of the U.S. spend more than other regions, and it doesn't uh, and, and get more services, and it doesn't appear to make them healthier. You're right. Uh, defensive medicine, I think, is a big part of that. So are the financial incentives that uh, exist for doctors and hospitals to provide more, more stuff. Uh, what the Dartmouth folks estimate is that about 30% of what we spend on medical care, $700 billion a year, if that number rings any bells. Um, $700 billion a year doesn't doesn't do anything to improve either health outcomes or patient satisfaction. So how much of that one-third is due to uh, incentives to provide defensive medicine? How much of that is due to financial incentives for doctors to provide more? That's a much more difficult question to tease out. Um, Let me go to this gentleman here.
3: Thank you. Uh, Oren Litwin from George Mason University. Um, on that topic, has there been any uh, effort to try to compare um, malpractice insurance premiums with money spent on diagnostic care? Because you would think that if the uh, premiums are being priced to accurately ref- reflect the uh, likelihood of malpractice damages, that there would be some sort of a relationship in, in that, between those two.
1: Uh, I, I'd love to see that, but I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah, nor have I. Same. Um, I think we have one more
0: follow-up question in the back, and let's make this the last one.
4: get more money for ordering more tests. I think the hospital works that out after after we see patients and everything's right. done. The hospital, whatever they do with reimbursement, because God knows how complicated that is, it's about how much money they can get out of that patient, whatever way they do that. But. We, we never make more money for, I mean, on private practice, you might make more money for ordering more tests, mm. but it has nothing to do with our salaries. And I'm not right. accusing
2: you of, no, of some not. sort of medical corruption, <laughs> but right. you, if but the hospital were paying more, that. if the hospital were losing money every time you ordered a test, presumably there would be some sort of either subtle or explicit efforts to get you to order fewer tests. Yeah, not tests. so much. What you have seen, by the way, is um, there are particular professions where there are very, very high medical malpractice costs, namely uh, anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And... What they did was they implemented a series of professional reforms and dropped them by half because one of the big medical malpractice problems that we don't sort of talk about is that the issue is not in courtrooms, it's on operating tables. There's actually a lot of medical malpractice. It's not that people are trying to do the wrong thing, but we have a technologically non-advanced, very non-standardized system. People make an enormous number of mistakes, huge numbers of people are hurt and and, and die. And one thing the studies on malpractice do show is that there are very few frivolous lawsuits, and the ones that there are, two-thirds get thrown out that's getting panels of doctors to review the uh, the lawsuit data. So I, I really, I, I'm actually, um, uh, even as a liberal, I'm okay with medical malpractice reform, but it really does need to be paired with safety reform. You, you do need to, one of the best ways to cut down medical malpractice cost is to cut down on malpractice, and there are very simple ways like checklists and sterilization that could do that.
0: And, and I think that it is possible, uh, and and I think it does happen, that even though the individual practitioner who's making the decision about whether to uh, do a CT scan or not. Uh, even though that practitioner is, uh, is not paid on a fee-for-service basis, you're not making an extra $200 if you order up this CT scan. If the institution uh, is paid on that basis, then those financial incentives can trickle down. Uh, it, trickles out, it affects the number of CT scanners, um, uh, for one thing. So I think that that can affect um, uh, medical spending, even if it doesn't affect the income of the provider on the spot. And with that, I want to thank uh, Ezra and Glenn for joining us and all of you and invite you to uh, join us upstairs for a luncheon in our winter garden. Thank you.